Today I'm talking with speaker and best-selling author Dr. Gaber Mate, who has expertise on a range of topics including addiction, stress and childhood development. Good evening, Gaber. Good evening, Michal. So tell me, Gaber, who are you and what do you do? I'm a medical doctor in Vancouver, British Columbia, retired from clinical practice now after 32 years of uh, work in the medicine field. I've worked in family practice and palliative care. Um, in addictions for 12 years, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, later on in this uh, discussion. Um, I'm very interested in the mind-body unity. I'm interested in how childhood stress shows up as adult illness. And I'm interested in just what human be- makes human beings tick. And uh, both my personal experience and my clinical experience have taught me that it's much more useful to look at the health and illness as part of a, an expression of human lives rather than simply as unfortunate events that struck, strike some people randomly and others uh, are escape from it. It's much more of a unity than medicine uh, and, and Western medicine likes to acknowledge. And I've, I've written four books, which have been published in 20 languages internationally. Uh, none of them have been published in Ireland, I'm afraid to say, or in, in the UK, but almost everywhere else. What prompted you to move into this area of work, Gabriel? Vancouver, uh, for those that don't know, contains one of the world's most concentrated areas of drug use. We have a place called the Downtown East Side that you tell me you were here, you might have seen. Uh, which is in a few square block radius, uh, houses thousands of people who are dependent on injectable or inhalable or ingestible drugs of all kinds. We have a high rate of HIV here, of hepatitis C and other diseases due to addiction. And we also have many services, some of them quite pioneering and forward-looking for addicted human beings. So. It was a very interesting area of the world and of the town to work in. Also, to confess, um, I've had my own addictive tendencies so that the people that I worked with, although they were at much more extreme states of addiction than I ever had the uh, experience of personally, Nevertheless, there was much about them that I recognized in myself. So there's both a professional interest and uh, fascination with this very difficult subject, an opportunity to help people who really needed support and medical expertise, but also to recognize myself in much of what I was dealing with. And what is addiction? Well, my definition of addiction, uh, well, first of all, let me say that's an important question because society, and, and, and I'm including society in Ireland as well, uh, or in um, Western Europe or the British Isles or North America, is by and large seen by people and by the official perspective as a choice that people make. So it's just a bad choice to engage in self-harming behaviors. And other people see it simply as a brain disease. Uh, My definition of addiction is any behavior any behavior, substance-related or not, that an individual finds temporary relief or pleasure in, craves for that reason, despite negative consequences, and so that it's craving pleasure, relief, negative consequences, and an inability to give it up, despite those negative consequences. So that's what an addiction is. And as you can see from that, that could be to heroin or cocaine or crystal meth or alcohol as I'm sure in Ireland is well known, but it could also be to work, to sex, to relationships, to internet, to gambling, to food, to shopping, to any any number of human activities. So it's not the external activity or the substance, but the internal relationship to it. Does it provide temporary relief? Is there craving? Is there short-term pleasure at the expense of negative consequences, inability to give it up? That's what an addiction is. At times, Gabor, addiction can be classified as a disease. And do you think that addiction is the true meaning of disease? I think the disease model is far too narrow to uh, encompass the full um, experience of addiction. It has the features of a disease in that it, it's got symptoms, it causes um, physical, mental debility, and it's relapsing like many other diseases are. 
but it's much more than just a disease. So that the medical model, which is a disease model, although it's helpful and useful in some ways, it's also limiting and insufficient to to explain what addiction is really about. Could you give me an insight into an addictive personality? Again, I have to emphasize that nobody's born with an addictive personality, so that we're not talking about genetic diseases here. We're not talking about biologically determined events. Um, what we're talking about is what is the personality? The personality is our response to our environment, basically. So the addictive personality has a deep sense of its own insufficiency, uh, a profound emptiness that it tries to fill from the outside, whether through drugs or through certain behaviors like gambling or sex or whatever it is. Uh, the addictive personality um, is unable to regulate its own stresses so that when it gets stressed, it needs to reach for some external control, such as alcohol, such as uh, drugs, such as yet another sexual relationship to make itself feel better and not so stressed. Um, the addictive personality um, harbors a lot of fear, a lot of shame about its own existence. So shame is very close at the heart of the addictive personality. And we tend to think that shame is caused by the addiction. Of course, the addiction and all the lies and all the dysfunctions that addiction generates adds to our shame. But the shame was at the core of the addiction before the addiction was even there. So I would say sense of inadequacy, emptiness, shame, and inability to regulate stress internally, therefore needing external crushes really, that's what characterizes the addictive personality. Do you think people are disposed to addiction, say, either genetically or is it by their experiences, say, as children? Well, um, this is the big argument, of course. Uh, in the medical view, uh, the, I don't know how addiction is defined in your part of the world, but the American Academy of Addiction Medicine, which is the dominant um, um, governing uh, body of addiction physicians in North America defines addiction as a brain disease, as a primary brain disease, so it arises in the brain, largely determined by genetic factors. And I would say that that's a false view. I would say that there are some genes that might predispose, but a predisposition is not the same as a predetermination. And we also know that genes are turned on and off by the environment. And so the decisive influence in all cases of addiction is personal trauma, emotional loss in childhood, or experiences of abuse very directly. In a context of what we might call social or cultural dislocation, so that the more um, dislocation there is in a country where people lose their culture, they lose their connection to the land, their connection to their families, to their work, um, to their spiritual experience, the more addiction you're going to see. That's on a broad social level, so it's dislocation. On an individual level, addiction is always a response to pain. So addictions, whether to drugs, alcohol, substances of any kind, or to behaviors, are always an attempt to soothe pain. And the source of that pain is in a person's childhood experience very early on in life. Is there a link, say, between brain injury and addiction, Gabor? What, what is clear enough from the science, and this is not even controversial, although... Amazingly enough, it's not taught in the medical schools yet in North America, and I'm sure it's not taught in your part of the world either. I, I can't be 100% sure, but I, I very much suspect that it's not, is that the brain itself turns out to be a product of the environment. In other words, our brains are not genetically determined. How our brains develop and which circuits develop depends very much on the rearing environment. And um, I can actually... Um, quote you an article from the journal of pediatrics which is the official journal of the american pediatric association and they point out that the brain is uh develops um, through an interactive relationship between the environment and our genes and uh the decisive influence on the development of brain circuitry is actually the interactive 
uh, mutual responsiveness of parent and child so that the brain circuits that are implicated in addiction, and we can go through them if you like, but there's three or four major brain circuits not functioning well in the addicted brain. These circuits actually develop or don't develop in response to the environment. Now, just to make that point clear, if you take a child with perfectly good eyes at birth and you put them in the dark room for five years, it doesn't matter how good his genes are, and it doesn't matter um, how good the eyes are at birth, if that child is in a dark room for five years, he'll become blind for the rest of his life because the circuits of vision require light waves for their development. And if without the input of light waves, the, even the visual circuits, the rudimentary visual circuits present at birth will atrophy and die and they can't come back. Now the circuitry of uh, stress regulation, emotional self-regulation, the circuitry of our internal opiate substances, which are called endorphins, or endogenous morphine-like substances. The circuitry of our dopamine circuits. Dopamine is our incentive motivation chemical in the brain. Endorphins and dopamines are important in the addiction context because the opiates, such as heroin and morphine and so on, and the stimulants such as crystal meth and cocaine and nicotine, and um, and caffeine, uh, these addictive substances, they all work through the either the dopamine circuits or the endorphin circuits. And what I'm saying is that these circuits develop or don't develop in interaction with the environment. And the most important influence on the physiological and biochemical development of the circuitry is actually the quality of parent-child relationships. And that begins already in utero, so that when women are stressed during pregnancy, that already predisposes their kids towards addiction as adults. So it's an ongoing process that begins before birth. To quote this article from Harvard, um, the Harvard Center on the Developing Child in the Journal of Pediatrics, it's an interactive process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, and is mostly and most acutely influenced by the quality of child-parent relationships. So whenever there's childhood trauma, whenever there's stressed parenting, whenever there's physical or sexual abuse, uh, that's going to interfere with the development of the circuitry. So the, the many children that in Ireland were abused in various um, religious institutions as, 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 as not too long ago being divulged and widely discussed in England, sorry, in Ireland, those children are at increased risk of addiction. And I'm sure if you looked at the rate of alcoholism and drug abuse and other uh, addictive behaviors, they're elevated above the average. Because traumatic experiences actually interfere with proper brain development, not to mention when you're traumatized, that shame that I talked about, children take everything personally. So when something terrible happens to you, your assumption is that this is happening because you are a terrible person. That's the assumption that the child makes. So there's a deep shame at the very core of the child who's hurt in childhood. Not that there should be, but there is. So the shame and the pain and the disordered brain circuitry all originate in childhood experience. Would you classify people's addiction to power being in the same realm as this, Gabor? Well, if you look at many people that seek power um, saliently um, in a TED talk in Rio de Janeiro, I talked once about four very power-hungry people, Alexander the Great, Hitler, Stalin, and Napoleon. And uh, we know um, they all had very tough childhoods, um, emotionally very unsatisfied. They felt empty without power. They had to have more and more. Uh, at least two of them, in fact, I'd say at least three of them were rather pathological personalities uh, who needed to complete themselves by uh, insatiable uh, demand for power. So any attempt to complete yourself from the outside is, is, is addictive, and power is highly addictive. And it's very often very pathological people that get drawn to power, as we've seen throughout history and as we've seen many politicians. And do you think a person's ego has an impact in regard to the level and say, even the intensity of the addiction? The ego is actually 
our defensive structure that we build up unconsciously but automatically as children in response to stresses in our environment. So that when we feel powerless, one response to that might be um, to submit to power so that we can be protected by power, by somebody else's, to, in other words, to become a follower. But another egoic response could be to seek power for ourselves so that, so that we can compensate for that lack of for that sense of powerlessness. So the people that seek power very often are trying to compensate for their internal sense of lack of power. And uh, you can see what happens to them when they lose power. They can't handle it. Because so much of their self-definition, the egoic self-definition is a compensation for, the, for what they're lacking within. And is there an interesting, say, as a, a positive addiction then, Gabor? Well, not according to my definition. Again, recall. My definition of is any behavior, substance-related or not, that a person craves, finds temporary pleasure or relief in, despite negative consequences. So if there's negative consequences, it can't be positive. So what people call positive addictions, if they are the love of the land, or love of another human being, or love of music, as long as there are no negative consequences, that's not a, that's not an addiction. It's a, it's a passion. And there's nothing wrong with that. The word the word addiction itself comes from a Roman a Latin word which implies slavery. Uh, I'm not going to go into the etymological details of it unless you'd like me to. But addiction, the very word itself, implies slavery. And you, are you asking me is there a positive slavery? No, there's no positive slavery. And what do you think is the biggest reason why people say don't overcome addictions then? There's very little understanding of it. And most physicians, uh, for example, who deal with addiction, they see it as the disease. They don't see. Now, I don't know. Let me ask you, Michal, if, if, if you're willing to be so open, and I'm not expecting that you would be, but according to my definition, and I'm not going to ask you any details, but would you agree that one time or another you've had some addictive patterns in your life? Yeah, well, I, I was addicted to cigarettes for a long time and I quit there about 12 months ago, but yeah, that's an addiction, cigarettes. Fair enough, okay. So let me ask you this question. Um, not what was wrong with it, because you and I both know what was wrong with it. What did you like about it? What did it give you in the short term? A comfort feeling, really. Okay, comfort, all right. Can you see, therefore, that the addiction wasn't your primary problem? The addiction was an attempt to solve your problem. Your problem, your primary problem was this, this discomfort you had with life or with yourself. So what the addiction actually is, is an attempt to solve the problem. It's a secondary problem that comes out of a primary problem. So when we put all the emphasis on trying to fix the secondary problem, but we don't pay attention to the primary one, how can we possibly succeed? So that, now most physicians are not, don't understand that. Then we're doctors, as doctors, we're not trained that way. And, and even the 12-step groups, they, they, they see the addiction as the problem. As, as in your case, the real question is, what happened to you? I'm not asking you to answer me. I'm just raising the question. Uh, something happened in your life, and I know that it happened in your childhood. I don't know anything about you, but I, I can guarantee it happened in your childhood that made you inst intensely uncomfortable with yourself and, and with the present moment and with how life was. So you try to escape from that temporarily into an attempt to change the chemistry of your brain temporarily through nicotine. So the nicotine was your attempt to solve a problem. It wasn't the fundamental problem. So when you say, uh, how, why is it so hard to treat? It's so hard to treat because we don't understand it. And, and it's so hard to treat because the things that our people are looking to, the addiction, to, to give them. And when I ask the same question I asked of you, people say, it gave me pain relief, relief from stress, temporary comfort. It gave me a sense of control or power in my life. It connected me more to other people. When you look at all those answers that people provide in response to the question, what did it do for you? The pain relief, the 
sense of comfort, the diminished alienation, the sense of control. These are essential human qualities. This is what we all want. And so that the addiction is like a substitute for genuine human experiences. And the real issue is, why are so many people so deprived from their authentic experience of themselves? What happened to them? And unless we're willing to ask that question and to go into it deeply, we can't help people with addictions very much. But that's the question that's not being asked. We're seeing the addiction simply as the primary problem rather than as the person's attempt to solve the problem. And fundamentally, it all comes down to pain. I mean, opiates like, like heroin, morphine, these are all painkillers. They're the most powerful painkillers that we have. Um, alcohol is a pain reliever. I don't know whether this expression is extant in Ireland or not, but in North America, when somebody drinks too much, they talk about he's feeling no pain, referring to the analgesic quality of the alcohol. For, for me, no matter what the addiction is, whether it's to behaviors, uh, escaping from yourself through the internet, gambling, whatever it is, it's an attempt to uh, re uh, reduce or to eliminate temporarily pain, emotional pain. And so the mantra that I keep repeating is not why the addiction, but why the pain. And so to understand addiction, we have to look at human pain. And I'm afraid that the medical profession is not very good at looking at human pain. Um, it's for all kinds of reasons, but we, we, don't, we don't talk about that in medical school. And the very word trauma, which is at the very essence of addiction, in most medical schools, students don't hear a single lecture on trauma, except in the sense of physical injury, but not in the sense of the psychic wounds that most people suffer in the process of growing up. And especially in highly stressed societies, in societies where, um, I don't have to tell you about Irish history, but it's, it's a very difficult history, colonialism, uh, uh conflict, uh, oppression, poverty, um, a very rigid religious hierarchy, the abuse of children in the context of institutions that are supposed to have been there to support them. What do you expect? You expect a lot of addiction in a country like that. You expect a lot of people attempting to escape from pain. And then we add to the pain by ostracizing and shaming and uh, criticizing and rejecting the addicted person for their attempts to escape from their pain. So then we add more uh, suffering onto the primary suffering. And then we're surprised that we're not so good at treating the condition. It's interesting enough, in, in Ireland, there's a certain attitude towards alcohol that we seem to revere people who have an ability to drink large amounts of alcohol, you know. No, there's a romanticization. Uh, I'm from, originally from Hungary, and it's the same over there. Hungary's got one of the highest alcoholism rates in the world. It is, you know, it's always had, you know. And uh, there's a kind of romanticization of the person who can drink everybody else under the table. And really what we're romanticizing is the escape from pain. And we're not looking at the pain underneath it. Because uh, it's too painful. I mean, you know, if we actually want... It's, it's, it's painful to experience pain. So we, we romanticize and idolize people that are really good at escaping pain. In working, say, with the underprivileged and the homeless scabber, is a harm reduction approach more practical and beneficial than, say, a total abstinence approach to addiction? Well, first of all, let's look at who the homeless are. If you, do the literature, if you do the literature search on homelessness, as I have, what you find is that most homeless people were also traumatized in childhood. So it's the same source that we're looking at. Why is it that a person can't find a home? It's because they never had one. Their home where they were born was not really a home. So they're alienated, they're scared, they are um, resourceless, um, without skills. Secondly, amongst the homeless, there's a huge rate of, a large rate of mental illness. And the source of mental illness, again, is, if you look at the literature and the research and you talk with people, is very often trauma. So that mental illness, addiction and homelessness 
form part of a, a continuum. Now the question then is, what's the best attitude to take towards these people? Well, if we're going to be human about it, humane about it, if we're going to be Christian about it, you know, and I raised that, I'm not Christian myself, I'm Jewish, but Ireland being a largely Catholic country, a Christian-based country, what was the Christian attitude? What was the core Christian attitude towards those people that suffered? We would have compassion, not one of punishment. I mean, that's what the central figure at the heart of Christianity, Jesus taught, is that, is that you respond to suffering with compassion. And that you don't judge people. Judge not lest ye be judged, he says. And th that truth that he spoke, of course, is entirely applicable to the question we're discussing today. So any approach that includes rejection, judgment, or punishment is only going to add to the suffering. It's going to make things worse. So then, how do you deal with people, with people who've suffered so much that they can't make their way in the world? Well, you give them whatever support you can. <clears throat> in the case of addicted people, here in Vancouver, we have something called the Supervised Injection Site, SIS, or INSIGHT, it's called I-N-S-I-E-T. I-N-S-I-T-E, Insight. Um, I was the physician there for a couple of years. At Insight, people are allowed to bring their drugs, their illegal drugs, because drugs are not legalized or decriminalized in Canada, but they're allowed to inject them under medical supervision. And they're, cleaving, they're given clean needles and sterile swabs and sterile water to inject with. And they're given a space where they can do so observed and if they overdose, they're resuscitated. Now, that's harm reduction. What does harm reduction mean? It means that addiction imposes harm. One of the harms of addiction is, is the transmission of, of infectious disease, like HIV or hepatitis C. You give somebody a clean needle and sterile water, you're preventing disease transmission, which reduces the harm to the individual, to others, and to society as, a, society as a whole, because it also means, obviously, it's a lot less costly to prevent HIV than to have to treat it. So it's strictly harm reduction measure. Does it treat addiction? Not directly. It's not meant to, but, it's, but it, does, it is meant to make the life of the addict more livable and less unhealthy. It's also meant to give them a sense of acceptance and support that otherwise they wouldn't have which is also the first step, first potential step towards them developing the trust in treatment programs. For some, in some circles, this is a hugely controversial uh, practice. The Canadian government, the former Canadian government, I'm happy to say, defeated in the election of three weeks ago, tried to shut this place down and was prevented from doing so only by a vote of the Canadian Supreme Court who decided that this is an essential medical service that the government had no right to curtail. Well, there should be such facilities in every major city in the world, uh, including um, Dublin, and including anywhere where there's large numbers of addicts. But there aren't. So harm reduction is not the answer to addiction or to homelessness, but it is part of the answer. And uh, anybody who wants to argue otherwise needs to explain to me why it's better to let people inject with puddle water rather than sterile water. Why it's better to let people share needles than to give them clean needles. Why it's better to let them live in the streets than to give them decent housing, despite the fact that they're using. What principle of medicine or humanity or Christianity or rationality would dictate that you make people's lives worse? In my book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, which is my book on addiction, although it's not been published on your side of the, the water, at least, um, it's available on Amazon. Uh, I do ex expand on the subjects of 
you know, harm reduction and supervised injection and uh, brain development, everything we've talked about, so that if people want to read more about my views on this, including the documentation, they can check out my YouTube videos or certainly look at the book. What are your thoughts, say, Gabardin, on AA as a way to help people who are addicted to substances? I think there's the 12 steps that they provide. First of all, just the acknowledgement of the ego's powerlessness over the addiction. And then the, uh, the recognition that there's a higher power. And now some people have trouble with the higher power. Some people have been uh, badgered with religion over their lives. They don't want to accept that there's God in the traditional sense. And I understand where they're coming from. But if we can understand that the higher power does not need to be any kind of traditional deity, it may be for some people, and that's fine too. But it's actually just a, a deeper, truer uh, part of ourselves that's not identified with the ego, that that appeal to the higher power, uh, the recognition of the ego's powerlessness, then, then the moral inventory where we actually look at, well, what have we done here? And what has been impact on ourselves and other people of what we've done? These are, and, and all the other nine steps, these are necessary steps. I think they're very helpful, healthful, and life-enhancing. So I, I, I am happy to support the 12-step movement. Uh, what is missing, I think, which is tragically missing, I think, from their perspective, is what I've been talking about. They don't recognize trauma. They, they do think of addiction as just as a brain disease, that you, you got it because your father had it, whatever. They don't actually look at the traumatic piece. So they don't help people confront the pain at the core of the addiction, which I think is a, a, a serious uh, omission on their part. Um, so that doesn't mean that what they offer isn't important. It is. I'm just saying that there's something missing. And is there a credible treatment alternative to AA? Well, uh, look, uh, AA works for some people. It does not work for many people. Uh, there's no single modality that works for everybody. Um, for those who know it works, it can work very beautifully. Uh, some of the happiest people I've met have been graduates, if you will, or long-term mm, participants in the 12-step process. But most people that end up going don't end up staying. So it's clearly no panacea. There are no panaceas. So there are not, there, there are secular uh, step programs like Life Ring is another step program, if you will, that's a secular one. Um, there are um, some people, strangely enough, or if you wish, but they get better from addictions by the means of sacred substances. Um, by, by shamanic ceremonies, traditional practices, Aboriginal practices of all kinds. Here in Canada, we have a huge problem with our Aboriginal population, the native Indians, if you like, of Canada, although they don't call themselves Indian because they're not from India, but they've been called that, which is a historical mistake, but that's what they've been called. Um, huge addiction problem because of massive dislocation, massive... Uh, historical trauma, massive um, expropriation of their lands, destruction of their life, ways of life, very deliberate uh, extirpation of their culture, and then the sexual abuse of generations of native kids in religious residential homes. So there's a huge addiction problem here in that population. So whereas native Canadians make up four or five percent of the population, they make up 30 percent of the jail population and 30 percent of the people who are addicted in the downtown instead of Vancouver. And in some provinces, they make up 70, 80 percent of the jail population, mostly because of addiction issues. These people also have a very rich traditional culture with healing practices that can be very helpful in the treatment of addiction. So I think when it comes to addiction, we need everything. We need good psychotherapy. We need um, trauma-informed care, good, uh, care that recognizes the centrality of trauma and, and emotional pain and loss and suffering in the, in the person's history that occurred in childhood. We need, um, for those that are drawn to it, the 12-step programs, we need traditional practices. Uh, we need 
to stop this insane and retrograde and tremendously harmful so-called war on drugs, which targets drug addicts. You know, you can't have a war on drugs. You, you, you don't make war on inanimate objects. Inanimate objects are not subject to being waged war on. The drug is actually waged against low-level drug users for the most part. We, stop, we need to stop punishing people for their attempt to deal with suffering through addictive means. We need to stop pretending that there's something more respectable about power addiction than heroin addiction. We need to stop pretending that alcohol is more acceptable than heroin. Alcohol is much more harmful than heroin is in the long term to the body and to the spirit. Not that I'm recommending heroin addiction, I'm just making a medical comparison, not to mention cigarettes. What sense does it make that people can buy cigarettes at a corner store and kill themselves with it, but the heroin addict is jailed for the possession of their substance? I'm not recommending that we sell heroin in stores. I'm talking about the insanity, irrationality, and inconsistency that makes the job of treating addiction on a social level that much more difficult. We need to get just rational about this whole thing. All addiction, no matter what, are response to human pain. And the question is, how, what humane practices can we institute that help people deal with their pain in different ways? And that doesn't add to their pain. You can't help people escape addiction when you're adding to their pain, which is what the war on drugs does. So the whole conversation has to change. There's a debate at the moment, Gabor, whether sex addiction is a real addiction. Well, again, come back to my definition of addiction. Any behavior, substance-related or not, that a person finds temporary craving and pleasure or relief in, but which has negative long-term consequences and is unable to give up despite the negative consequences. So how would sex not be an addiction, a target of addiction by that definition? The sex addict keeps finding pleasure, temporary relief, and craves something that in the long term destroys her, destroys his soul, his relationships, his peace of mind, and possibly his health. So how, how is it not an addiction? And when you actually look at sex addicts, you find, first of all, that a large percentage of women sex addicts actually sexually abused these children. So they came to identify themselves as being wanted through their sexuality. And so their sexual acting out is nothing more than a desire to be wanted. And that's true for the male as well. See, sex addicts are not addicted to sex. That's obvious. Because if sex addicts are only addicted to sex, and I don't mean to be facetious in any way at all, not on the contrary, it's a very serious condition. But all a sex addict would have to do is to marry another sex addict. Then they could have all the sex they wanted with no negative consequence. But it's not about sex. It's actually about the desperation to be wanted, the desperation to be validated. And it's also about, because as children, they didn't experience themselves as being wanted for themselves and for being validated for who they were. So they need to get that through this sexual desperation. Furthermore, any state of wanting and desire and seeking triggers dopamine release in the brain. Dopamine, as I mentioned earlier, is the incentive motivation chemical in the brain without which we actually can't live. We'd be listless and inert and inactive without it. In the sex addict, like in other, other addicts, because of childhood adversity, those dopamine circuits didn't develop properly. What the sex addict actually wants, or what the shopping addict actually wants, or the gambling addict actually wants, is the same thing. They want a temporary state change in their brain. So they want a temporary change in their brain chemistry through the release of dopamine. And through that intense sexual craving and seeking, they get this dopamine hit. And that's what they're addicted to. They're not addicted to the sex. It's just that they get it through the sex. Just as the gambler gets it through, gambler gets it through the, the gambling behavior. And it all goes back to, again, to childhood experience. So, like with every other addiction, there, there's a continuum, you know. Um, very few of us, I think, 
are completely immune to the sexual charge that we get when somebody wants us or when we want somebody else and that sense of pursuit, that delicious longing. And this is good not to be sex addicts. We can be happily married, but which one of us is totally immune to that frisson, to that charge, to that excitement? That's because none of us are completely complete. Now, the sex addict is in a deeper state of incompletion. And they've been sexually oriented for some reason. So they're just acting on something that many of us experience to some degree, but in them, it's present in a higher level. They're not that different from the rest of us. Um, and in no wise are they different from other addicts, except that their target of behavior happens to be on sexuality. Just as for other people, it is on gambling, for others are on shopping, and for others it's on heroin. But again, as I pointed out in my book, there's a universal addiction process that biochemically, in terms of brain circuitry, in terms of psychology, in terms of source, it's all the same. It doesn't matter what the target of the addiction is. And so sex addiction, sex addiction is just another example of the same process. And it's only kind of puritanism and superiority that, and a moralism that wants to judge the sex addict as somehow oh, corrupt rather than as just another person in pain. In regard to homelessness then, Gabriel, like, like how would you prevent homelessness, say, for vulnerable people such as kids leaving care or psychiatric services or even like prison and treatment services? Unfortunately, when children are hurt emotionally, um, sexually, physically, they will act out their pain in ways that bring negative attention to them. And that starts in the family. It starts in the schools. And those kids that act out their pain even more mm, vividly, it, 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 then it enters the legal system. So our response to the manifestation of childhood pain is rejection and punishment, which exacerbates uh, and inflames the problem even more. So the prevention needs to be that families at risk need to get a lot of support. That mothers who are stressed, the prevention of addiction and homelessness needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. Because already what happens to the pregnant woman, woman has an impact on the child's development. And then as soon as problems arise, Instead of punishment, those children need a lot of support, a lot of loving support. Imagine if all the money that's now going into punishment, incarceration, um, discipline, so-called discipline, if all those resources instead went into prevention. Prevention in childhood then would then mean proper care for these kids um, by caregivers who really understand them, teachers instead of taking so-called bad behaviors, unquote, personally, or signs of deficiency or failure, would recognize the so-called bad behavior as the child's desperate cry for help. So if the schools became compassionate institutions, if physicians, social workers, were trained in understanding trauma and, and the implications of trauma, in human psychology and human brain development. If all this happens, in other words, if we just apply the evidence that's richly available already, we don't have to do more research. We just have to apply what we already know. We could prevent a lot of uh, adult dysfunction. And interesting enough, you may know this, you may not, but at the moment, Ireland has a homeless crisis as a result of the lack of housing in Ireland would you have any thoughts on this, Gabor? Well, uh, sure. I mean, you know, um, I know some years ago they were talking about the Irish miracle economically, but I don't think anybody's talking anymore about the Irish miracle, are they, economically? No, that, that's long gone. This, the, I don't know what you call it now, but it's, it's definitely not the Irish miracle, you know? No, it's, it's gone, right? Well gone, yeah. And so 
what happens when in, in times of economic um, loss is that that loss most affects the most vulnerable people. And the most vulnerable people are the mentally ill and the traumatized. And it shows up. If, if there's homelessness in Ireland, just as in, just as there's here in Vancouver, and Vancouver is where I live, is repeatedly and chronically voted, uh, I don't know by who, as the most livable city in the world. But we have significant homelessness here. We don't lack wealth here. We don't lack resources here. Just as Ireland, I know it's not a rich country, uh, but it doesn't lack resources. But how are those resources allocated? And how are they spent? And what are the priorities? So, I mean, if there's homelessness in Ireland, it's just because the care of the traumatized is not a priority in Irish society. If it was, there would be no homelessness. The people that are the most vulnerable are the ones that are the ones who are going to suffer. And the most vulnerable ones are the most traumatized ones. In other words, the people that were most vulnerable in infancy and childhood are going to remain the most vulnerable, for the most part. In regard to, to traditional homeless services, such as say, soup kitchens and shelters, Gabor, do you think they help or normalize the problem so that people get stuck in the homelessness situation then? Well, I, I don't know. I, I would not want to go to a homeless lineup, sorry, a, a soup kitchen lineup, and uh, explain to somebody that, sorry, today I'm not going to give you soup because I want to make a point that society should take a more serious look at your problems. So therefore, tonight you're not going to have soup. So, I mean, I think anything you do to help people is good. You know, uh, the problem is if we think that they're the answer. In other words, a soup kitchen is not the answer. The soup kitchen, however, gives somebody soup, which is a good thing. But the very fact that we need a soup kitchen should be seen as a marker of a major problem, not as the solution to it. At the moment in Ireland, there's separate hostels for both men and women. What would be your thoughts on this? I'd, I'd, have to more about, I'd have to know much more about the rationale uh, for, for what was making those decisions. I know that a lot of the women who are homeless and mentally ill have been sexually abused, not just as uh, children, but also as, as, as adults. And... Uh, so I would be in favor of anything that, that gives them a measure of protection. I imagine that that may be behind that particular policy, but I don't know. I'd have to know more about it. Um, it, it doesn't concern me too much uh, one way or the other. It's whatever works for the people. Uh, in uh, Vancouver, the facility where I worked at, uh, the Portland Hotel, it was called. It wasn't a hotel. It was a domicile for people who are otherwise unhousable, mentally ill, addicted people that really could not be decently domiciled in the private housing market. There was just no provision for them. So that's where I worked for 12 years as a physician. That's where my clinic was. Uh, both men and women had their apartments there. Um, for the most part, that worked reasonably well. Um, but we, you know, we had staff there to protect people from, from abuse. So the key question is not whether men and women together, but what best protects people. And which model of care do you think works best in supporting people who are homeless? I think a harm reduction, um, uh, uh, housing first, that, that, that you can't help people unless you house them. And, and we know that when you house people decently, they use less drugs. Their drug use goes down. The level of dysfunction goes down. They're more likely to uh, open themselves to receiving medical care. So that over and over again, housing uh, has positive benefits, and it's the first essential step. You just can't help people when they're living in the street. You can't help them significantly. So housing has to be the housing for there's a there's a there's a initiative in the United States, actually, uh, founded by a Canadian physician called Sam Sambaris, and you may wish to speak with him sometime. Uh, called Housing First. 
Yeah, I know of it. There's ninety five percent success rate, isn't there? Yeah, they they have a very good success rate. And Sam's a wonderful guy. And we're very much on the same page. And um you have to have housing. I mean, you just, that's just a basic need. Because in Ireland, that's probably the biggest situation we have here at the moment. Do you think it should be a constitutional right? It's a human right. You know, I, I, I can't, I don't want to comment on the Irish constitution or any debates around it. I'm, I'm so far away from there, but I don't care what it takes. If a constitutionally enshrined right would somehow help people, I'm all in favor of it. If, um, I don't know what the legal implications would be, but whatever, you know, but it's how they should be seen as a human, as a basic human right. And, and, uh, any society uh, fundamentally needs to be judged, not on the gross domestic product, uh, or any other parameter, but simply how does it treat the most vulnerable members of that society, which means the mentally ill, which means the homeless, which means the, uh, the, the addicted people. How do you treat these people? If you treat them well, you can claim to be a successful society. And if you don't, then claims of success and self-congratulation are, are really hollow. Yeah, very, very, very true. And I know you talk about in regard to the health side of things, then Gabber. What are your thoughts in regards to people in Western society having a short attention span? Well, um, okay, so I was diagnosed myself with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. My first book was written on that subject. <clears throat> and again, uh, we have this uh, belief that it's another inherited disease. But when I started thinking about my own history, and, and um, this is even before I knew about brain development, because uh, the material I gave you on brain development wasn't taught in medical schools when I was a student, but wasn't even known then yet. But it's known now, but it's still not taught. But I just knew this much, that the hallmark of, of, of ADD, or Attention Deficit Disorder, which is the tuning out, the absent-mindedness, that's not a disease. What is actually tuning out when you, when you actually look at its function in the human brain and human life? It's a protective mechanism. So when people are stressed too much and they have, can't escape the situation nor change it, nor seek help within it, then they tune out as a way of enduring the stress. So the question is, what's happening in Western society that more and more kids are having to tune out? Now, when I looked at my own history, um, being a Jewish infant in Budapest, Hungary, 1944, uh, two months of age when the Nazis occupied Hungary, and then the genocide that had already extra, ex ex exterminated the the jury of all of Eastern Europe except Hungary now came to my homeland. And you can imagine the terrorized state of my mother during the first year of my life under the Nazis and her grief and uh, distress at the death of her parents in Auschwitz. What emotional circumstances did I live under as, a, as an infant? Terribly stressed. How would I cope with that? Well, I wouldn't. My brain would cope with it by tuning out. When was this happening? It was happening when my brain was being developed. When every millions, every second in the first year of life, there might be millions of connections being made. So that's when the tuning out gets programmed into the brain and the dopamine circuits of incentive and motivation don't develop properly because the infant's dopamine levels depend on the attention and the emotional presence of the mother. So when the mother is highly stressed, these dopamine circuits don't develop. Then we give the kids Ritalin and Dexedrine later on to elevate their dopamine levels. So when I put together um, what's happening in Western society, which is the increasing stress on parents because of economic factors, because of both parents having to work, because of the high divorce rate, because of the cultural disconnection, alienation, the loss of extended family, clan, tribe, community, so the, just the stress that more and more parents are under, under the system of globalization. And on the, on the one hand, on the other hand, what we know about brain development, it stands to reason that you're going to have more and more kids diagnosed with this problem. It's not a genetic disorder. It's a disorder of a society who no longer provides the right conditions for child development. And that's why we're seeing more and more of it. And it's typically, we make a... A medical problem out of it, as if it was simply a medical problem. Well, it is 
to some extent, but that's not all there is. It's a societal problem, and it's a, and, and, and it's a problem of children living under stressed circumstances. And, the, and when they act out those stresses, then the parents are usually taught to punish those kids and to try and control the behaviors rather than to understand the behaviors. So in my book on um, ADHD, the Canadian title, which is Scattered Minds, the American title is Scattered, I, I really talk about understanding the the child rather than simply trying to control the behaviors. It's not a disease, it's a developmental problem. And the question is, how can we help people develop properly, even later on in life? And um, this, again, is not appreciated by physicians who, again, look upon it simply as a question of biological determined pathology. And when I look at my children, who have also been diagnosed, two of them, with the same condition, well, that would seem to prove that it's a genetic problem. No, it doesn't. Because my children grew up in a home where the father was a workaholic, AD-driven physician, and the mother was a highly stressed woman in relationship with this guy. And there was a lot of stresses in our home. And our children were emotionally, probably genetically, very sensitive. So then they respond to that stress by their own defensive mechanism, of which tuning light is one, which then gets programmed into their brains. So we do pass this stuff on. We do pass our trauma on, but we don't necessarily pass it on genetically. We pass it on uh, by, by recreating conditions, one generation to the next, in which there is disconnection and stress and trauma. And as we also know from the most recent research, we also pass it on epigenetically, which means that not the structure of the genes, but the functioning of the genes is affected by trauma, and it's passed on from one generation to the next. So it's not a genetic problem, it's an epigenetic problem. It's how genes are triggered or turned on or turned off. So what we're seeing in the Western society now, and increasingly under globalization elsewhere as well, is a socially engineered problem of stress that is affecting the development of more and more children, and it's showing up in an increasing number of so-called medical diagnoses and uh, behavior problems, of which ADHD is one, but not the only one. How do you think we should channel the energy of anger? There's a spiritual teacher who um, lives in Vancouver. He's known throughout the world. His name is Eckhart Tolle, T-O-L-L-E, who says that wherever there's anger, underneath it there's always pain. So my question about anger is, what's the pain underneath it? And we need to approach that question very um, compassionately. When I'm dealing with people with a lot of anger, I want to know what's hurting them so much. What is, what is the origin of that pain? And, and how can I help them deal with that pain without acting it out in a form of anger? No, anger has a certain positive quality to it. It, 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 it moves you forward, you know, it, it's, it's better than depression, you know. In fact, what depression very often is, is suppressed anger, repressed anger. I'd rather have somebody be angry than depressed. But I'd want them to inquire as to the source of that anger. And anger, and, and anger sometimes is a necessary stage that we have to go through once we realize the truth of our lives. Itself, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a question of how we channel it. Do we channel it as an aggressive attack on somebody else? Or do we channel it as a movement forward for ourselves? How have your discoveries, say, improved your own health and happiness, say, of your, both yourself and your family? My ongoing health and happiness are, are a work in progress, um, I have to say. But um, I'm 71 now, you know, and I'm at much more peace with myself. And, uh, and I've been able to support the healing of my children as well. Um, as a result of what I've learned. Uh, I, I don't want to say that it's over. I, I don't know that it ever is, but uh, it's much less confusing. Um, I have much more of a sense of agency. When I do lose it, as I do it sometimes, I'm much quicker to come back to myself, to my true self. And in general, I have a much more optimistic perspective on life than I used to. And I have regular practice. I meditate every day. I, uh, 
I take my insights into the work that I do with others, into all the speaking that I do, uh, all the healing work that I do, um, and, uh, I, and I apply it to myself as best I can. I, I feel very fortunate. Gabor, would you have any final last words of wisdom for our listeners who may be experiencing some of the things that you discussed today? Yes. Um, the essence of trauma is not actually the external event. So the trauma is not the sexual abuse. The trauma fundamentally is not whether your parents loved you or not, or did they love you the right way. Most parents love their kids, although not necessarily the right way. Um, not in all the ways that the child requires it. The trauma is not an external event, which is good. Because if the trauma is the external event, such as you were abused as a child, or you were traumatized in some way, or neglected, or abandoned, or not held the way you needed to be held, if that was the trauma, that is irreparable, because it's happened in the past. But the actual trauma is not the external event, but the impact of it. So the impact of trauma is a deep disconnection from the self. That, that's what trauma actually is. That's just not my definition. That's in trauma circles and people in, in whose work I respect. That is the definition of trauma, is that disconnect from yourself. Well, that's the good news, because that disconnect can be repaired at any time, including the present moment. So if the problem is what happened 50 or 30 or 15 years ago, what can you do about it? Nothing. But if the, the real trauma was the disconnect from the self, that can be repaired at any time. That's psychological work, emotional work, physical work, spiritual work, but it can be, it's available at any time. So that's the really good news. And what I'm really saying is, if you look at the word healing, it comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for wholeness. So, and it's interesting enough, I don't know what the Gaelic Irish term with healing would be, but the Hungarian term for healing also means wholeness, actually, health. It also it literally means wholeness. And wholeness means that reconnection with ourselves. So that all of us, doesn't matter what stage of our lives and no matter what happened, have this healing capacity that's internal to us. That's just part of our nature. And so, despite what happened, whoever's listening needs to know that that healing capacity is not only in them, but it's actually an aspect, a genuine aspect of who they are. It's always available to them. So there's no reason ever to give up on anybody else or on ourselves. Beyond that, I can only say is is to invite people, uh, much of what I've said, I've said in YouTube lectures and articles and interviews, which are available freely through my website, www.drgabormate.com or, or just on YouTube. And of course, in the four books that I've written that people can check out. And uh, so everything I've said here, although I do find that in every discussion, something new comes up, or I, I say something maybe in a way that I haven't quite said it before, but fundamentally, People can revisit this message just by visiting my website or other other presences of mine uh, on 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 the on the web. Not to mention, there are many great teachers who um, speak a similar message. The Irish word for health is actually slanta. What does that mean? It means health, okay. spelled S L A I N T E. Would you have any sense of its um, original etymological meaning at all? I don't actually know. I just know it means health. It might be interesting to research that to see because in the original meanings of words, there's tremendous meaning very often, you know, in the original, in the source of words in any language, there's tremendous meaning that we lose the meaning. We keep using the word, but we, we, but we lose the original meaning very often. Like in, like I didn't know that health comes from the sense of wholeness, you know, and even though I've said the Hungarian word for health all my life, only more recently did I realize that it actually comes from the word for wholeness. So it might be very interesting to find out where the, where the Irish word comes from as well. When people are out drinking, do you know, do you know the way they say cheers in England? Cheers. We actually use the word slanta. Uh, to your health, yeah. Well, that's, yes. a, that's interesting too, because when you, when you think about alcohol and we use the word spirit, there was something in the original use of alcohol that was actually spiritual. 
like many substances were originally used as spiritual, mm, as, as, as an enhancement of a spiritual journey. But it's like everything else, it's, 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 it's everything can be degraded to its opposite, you know? But we, we, when you think of the word spirit, alcoholic spirits, there's a reason. Like I know that in Greece, there were spiritual rites that used alcohol as a way of connecting with God, you know? So who knows that there might be some some similar um, origin in Ireland as well. It'd be interesting to find out anyway. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Gerber. I appreciate that. Thank you. It's very nice to meet you. Same to you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.